Many years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. So they brought these gold cups taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. While they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, they saw the fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright. His knees knocked together in fear, and his legs gave way beneath him. The king shouted for the enchanters, astrologers, and fortune-tellers to be brought before him. He said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever can read this writing and tell me what it means will be dressed in purple robes of royal honor and will have a gold chain placed around his neck. He will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But when all the king's wise men had come in, none of them could read the writing or tell him what it meant. So the king grew even more alarmed, and his face turned pale. His nobles, too, were shaken. But when the queen mother heard what was happening, she hurried to the banquet hall. She said to Belshazzar, Long live the king! Don't be so pale and frightened. There is a man in your kingdom who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight and understanding and wisdom like that of the gods. Your predecessor, the king, your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief over all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune-tellers of Babylon. This man, Daniel, who the king named Belteshazzar, has exceptional ability and is filled with divine knowledge and understanding. He can interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought in before the king. The king asked him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles brought from Judah by my predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar? I have heard that you have the spirit of the gods within you, and that you are filled with insight, understanding, and wisdom. My wise men and enchanters have tried to read the words on the wall and tell me their meaning, but they cannot do it. I am told that you can give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read these words and tell me their meaning, you will be clothed in purple robes of royal honor, and you will have a gold chain placed around your neck. You will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Daniel answered the king, Keep your gifts or give them to someone else, but I will tell you what the writing means. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sid, for reading this morning a little bit of a longer passage, but uh, gives you some context of the passage that we're going to look at this morning. There is uh, at least, what, uh, 14 more verses to go till the end of chapter 5, and I encourage you to, to read that. And if you have a Bible, I encourage you to, to follow along with me this morning as we look at Daniel chapter 5. But if there was ever a biblical historical account that I think should be made into a movie, it would be Daniel chapter 5, because it would be perfect. There's drama, there's intrigue, there's outstanding characters, and it's a true story. Who doesn't love a true story? Daniel chapter 5 starts right after Daniel chapter 4 and verse 37. I know that's brilliant. I went to three years of seminary for that, uh, that little bit of advice. But right after chapter 4, verse 37, chapter 5 starts. But take me, let's just go look at verse 37 for a second. And it says there where Nebuchadnezzar is proclaiming this. He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride... He is able to humble. And this verse is really a summary of Nebuchadnezzar's life. If you go back and read chapters 2, 3, and 4, you can see it for yourself. Actually, this is probably a verse that we should all commit to memory, right? And insert our own name there. Now I, Norb, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. So when we ask the question, why do we worship God? Because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. Even when sometimes we think it's not right and not just, it is right and it is just. And that is an important truth for us to keep in mind. Because when things happen that we don't understand, that make absolutely no sense to us, God always has a bigger picture and purpose in mind. He is in charge. But there's more to verse 37 of chapter 4. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The last phrase there, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Again, another truth to keep in mind this morning. Nebuchadnezzar spoke those words, really, as a testimony of his own experience. That he understood how humiliated he was, if you go back and read chapter 4. Now chapter 5 is an illustration of that. So let me introduce you to some of the main characters of chapter 5 and some of the scenes or some of the acts that would make this a great movie. And once we can see and understand what is happening here in this passage, we can draw some personal life lessons and have a few takeaways. First of all, let me introduce you to the king, Belshazzar. King Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 BC. And The story kind of now fast-forwards to the very end of the Babylonian period. So the year is now 539 B.C., and this man by the name of Belshazzar is king. Now, there were three or four kings between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Um, and, And sometimes you might have a translation, if you're following along, that actually identifies Nebuchadnezzar's as Belshazzar's father. But that was just a common reference to an ancestor or a predecessor. Historical records identify Nabonidus as the final king of Babylon. 
But it appears that he, in fact, ruled from an area of what would be known today as Saudi Arabia. And he sent his son, Belshazzar, up as the ruler in Babylon. And so they were kind of co-rulers or co-regents um, is the term used when there's two, two kings just ruling from a different area. And what's interesting, I think, is his name, Belshazzar, and what it means. It means Obel, which was a reference to the god uh, named Marcus. It was the Babylonian deity. It was their big, big god. Protect the king. And so, O God, small g, but they referenced it as Marcus or Obel, protect the king. The irony of that will become clear in the last scene. Spoiler alert. But first, the first scene. There's a party, and it's an infamous one. So Belshazzar throws this giant party. It's a great feast for over a thousand of his nobles. They use a thousand because that was just a nice round number. They didn't take a head count. Just to say that there were lots and lots of people there. A huge party. And so there's eating and drinking and there's women. And presumably everyone is getting a little tipsy. It was the kind of Friday night office party that had everyone talking on Monday morning. Hey, wasn't that a party? Not sure. Oh, I better not go there because we'll all be humming some Irish Rovers tune if we go down that road. Now, I haven't been to that many office parties. At least our church staff parties aren't like this. I can guarantee you that. But for sure, the wine was flowing. And as if the drunken debauchery wasn't enough, the king stops the music, and he orders that all of the gold and silver cups that had been raided 70 years earlier from the temple in Jerusalem, that they would now be brought out because they were going to use these cups to drink the wine. Cups that had a sacred and holy purpose were now going to be desecrated. And the king is front and center of this. He's leading the charge. He's using these sacred cups previously used in the worship of God. And he's using them to toast the gods made of things. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. In other words, dead things. Lifeless gods. Now, can you sort of picture this somewhat uncontrollable scene? Every indulgence, there's eating, there's feasting, there's drinking, there's carousing. And then to top it off, using these cups meant to honor God, to toast the Babylonian gods. So, the next scene, the fingers of God. Because suddenly and without warning, a human hand appears and starts to write on the wall. Now, this wasn't some disembodied hand. It was, in fact, the fingers of God. Because God, God doesn't have a body. He's spirit. And, and, and so he doesn't have fingers. But his actions are often metaphorically described as being done by his hand. It was the finger of God that wrote the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets. The psalmist declares, in his hand are the depths of the earth. And as this hand starts to write, the music stops, the toasts are over, and all the people at the party, including the king himself, see the hand writing on the wall. 
Interesting, isn't it, when you just stop and think about it? Here's Belshazzar, who was really in control of the whole known world at the time, and a little tiny finger writing on the wall stops him dead in his tracks. Because God was getting his attention. And the king, understandably, is totally freaked out. As Sid read, his color changed. It says he turned white. His thoughts changed from, isn't this a party, to fear and fright. He was so afraid. It says that his, his knees started to knock together. And so you could see this guy become this quivering mess. And finally, his legs give way beneath him. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Do you see why I think this would make a great movie? You talk about a dramatic scene, right? Uh, Talk actually about kind of a pathetic scene. Because here's this great king, reduced to a pile, quivering on the floor. And I don't know if I should actually even say this this morning, because of all the kids that are here, this is probably the only thing they're going to remember from this message, is that the Hebrew word here used, they actually imply that he literally wet his pants. Remember that and take that home. But think about it. Think about how pathetic this scene suddenly is. The king proudly dancing, drinking, toasting, cheering with his friends. Suddenly laying on the floor in total humiliation. The most powerful man in the world, second only to his father, making a complete spectacle of himself. Well, he must have gathered himself together because verse 7 tells us that he shouted for the enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers. They were considered the wise men of Babylon. And if any one of them could tell him what the writing on the wall meant, they would get a nice outfit, maybe a, a purple robe, a gold chain, and they would actually be promoted to the number three ruler in the kingdom, right behind his father and himself. The symbols of royal power must have been a pretty significant motivator for these wise men. But even though... So, this is where the movie, I think, would get maybe a little bit predictable because we would almost expect these wise men to come in, to look at it, to stare at it, to stand back a little bit, pace back and forth in front of it, What does it mean? But the text says that none of them could read the writing or tell him what it meant. Interesting, isn't it? The wise men, the enchanters, the astrologers, the fortune tellers, they couldn't read it. Sorry, king, they had to say, we don't know what it says or what it means. Now the result of this would also be somewhat predictable because in verse 9... So the king grew even more alarmed and his face turned pale. I mean, he was already pale. The NIV captures this by saying, his face grew more pale. So what's paler than pale? I mean, what would it be now? There's absolutely no color left. And his nobles were shaken too. It says they're completely baffled. And suddenly it starts to dawn on everyone in the crowd This can't be good. 
And so into this chaotic scene enter another one of the characters, the mother of the king. She evidently was not in the room at the time, probably embarrassed by the way her son was acting, but she was likely not far away because she did hear what was happening. And the music had stopped along with this partying and festive atmosphere, and now it's just utter chaos, and all she can hear is the shouting. So she thinks to herself, there's something's going on. And so she, she hurries to the banquet hall and she speaks directly to her son. Long live the king. Good one, mom. Nice thing to say. But now, but by now we should probably know there's a certain irony to her words. Don't be so pale and frightened. Well, easy for you to say, mom. But isn't that just like something a mother would say? Right? She's just trying to be encouraging. Come on. It's okay. It's not so bad. Don't look so pale. Don't be so afraid. I mean, if dad showed up, it might have been more like, oh man, you're a mess. Pull yourself together. Look at yourself. Look at your pants. I mean, you really should change those, right? I mean, it'd be probably a little, a little harder on the poor guy. But mom, she's got this and has an answer for her son. Verse 11 now, there is a man, and she goes on to describe this man. He, quote, has with him the spirit of the holy gods. He was found to have insight, understanding, and wisdom like that of the gods. He was made chief over all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers of Babylon. He has exceptional ability and is filled with divine knowledge and understanding. He can interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. This is your man, O king. Daniel will tell you what it means. And of course, she was looking at it from from her pagan perspective because it was God Almighty who was the one who would interpret the dreams through Daniel. And so enter the man that she's talking about, Daniel. Verse 13. So Daniel was brought in before the king. We don't know where Daniel was at the time or what he was doing. He's now probably into his 80s. Maybe he was, you know, in a rocking chair at a senior's home, maybe in assisted living. I don't know. Maybe he was living in Kelowna or Florida or Phoenix, wherever retired people live. But they ask him to come out of retirement, and of course he does. Because God's servants never retire. And, and so the king asks him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles brought from Judah by my predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar? See, what's amazing to me is that Belshazzar shows no respect to Daniel, despite the predicament that he's in. I mean, basically, he says, aren't you one of the exiles? One of those undesirables that was brought in when another king was in charge? I mean, he didn't ask nicely and politely, are you Daniel, the one who is able to interpret dreams? Belshazzar attempts to put Daniel in his place by calling him an exile. If you look at verse 16 now, he says, if you can read these words and tell me their meaning... You see, the king himself is not convinced that Daniel can actually read the words and interpret them. If you can. And then he goes on to offer the same deal to Daniel as he had offered to the wise men. A nice purple suit, a gold chain, and 
you'll become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. I mean, (laughs) the king's pride is really quite astonishing. Have you ever noticed that arrogant people are really arrogant? Thank you, Captain Obvious. But seriously, this guy starts off with this giant party, likely to remind people of how powerful he was. He gets reduced to this quivering mess at his own very at his at this very party. And now when he meets the servant of the Most High God, he's still arrogant. As one commentator put it, he quote, treats Daniel as if he's interviewing a prisoner. The one person that his mother said would be able to help him. He's rather dismissive of. Well, that kind of covers the ground that Sid read for us already. But let's move on because, of course, we do get an explanation from Daniel. And Daniel even though he's experiencing Belshazzar's pride and his condescension, he refuses to accept the reward and proceeds to deliver a stinging rebuke to the king. He says, you can keep your gifts. I don't want that stuff. You can just keep it. But I'll tell you what the stuff on the wall, writing on the wall means. But he doesn't tell him right away because as soon as he said, I will tell you, I suspect that Belshazzar uh, stood up a little taller, leaned in a little closer, filled with anticipation and really listening. And since Daniel knew that he had the full attention of Belshazzar, he gave him an earful. Listen to verses 18 through 29. It says, Your Majesty, the Most High God gave sovereignty, majesty, glory, and honor to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He made him so great that people of all nations and races and languages trembled before him in fear. He killed those he wanted to kill and spared those he wanted to spare. He honored those he wanted to honor and disgraced those he wanted to disgrace. But when his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance... He was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven from human society. He was given the mind of a wild animal, and he lived among the wild donkeys. He ate grass like a cow and was drenched with the dew of heaven until he learned that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of the world and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. Nebuchadnezzar, like Belshazzar was a man of pride. But in the light of God's rebuke, he humbled himself. So before Daniel gives this explanation of the meaning of the words on the wall, the writing on the wall, he in fact summarizes chapter 4. And then in verse 22, he throws the zinger at Belshazzar and says, O Belshazzar, you knew all of this. He knew the history yet you have not humbled yourself. He says, you knew. You knew. But you remained prideful. Daniel hasn't even explained the writing on the wall yet, but he has sure put Belshazzar in his place. Then he goes on to tell him in verse 23 that what he did was so wrong. He says, you proudly defied the Lord. 
You use the sacred cups to drink wine. You use them in toasts to the gods who he described as gods that neither see nor hear no, no, nor know anything at all. Strong words, but true. And furthermore, he says, listen up, I'm not finished yet. You have not honored God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. You knew all this, Belshazzar, but you haven't humbled your heart before God. You didn't learn from Nebuchadnezzar's experience. God will not let the proud go unhumbled. And by doing what you did, you in fact expressed your immense arrogance. You thought you were bigger than God. What a joke. He controls your very breath. And he controls your future. So God has sent this hand to write this message. Many, many, Tekel and Parson. Daniel takes three nouns and changes them into their verbal meanings. Many, he says, means numbered. In other words, God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel means Weighed. You have been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. Parson means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. All three verbs anticipate Babylonians, the Babylons, Babylon's fall to the Medes and the Persians. Number one, many, Babylon's days are numbered. Two, Babylon has been evaluated and found wanting. And three, the Medes and the Persians are the human agents of Babylon's fall. Now everyone knew that the writing on the wall would be no good. But they probably didn't expect it to be this bad. So cue the dramatic music, pan the camera to a close-up of Belshazzar's face, who now must be completely horrified. And God certainly had his attention at this point. Well, now the final scene. The attack. A surprise one at that. We don't know what the interpretation of the meaning of those words that were written on the wall meant. Or we know now what it meant, but we don't know what impact it had immediately on Belshazzar. He did ironically keep his word and give Daniel all that he said he would, a purple robe, a gold chain. He was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. We also don't know if the immediate outcome of Daniel's explanation resulted in Belshazzar humbling himself and acknowledging God finally turning to him in repentance and faith. But what we do know is that that very night, Belshazzar was killed. So much for the protection of the king by the god Bel. The year, as I said earlier, was 539 B.C. They can place it in October. 
And, and, and from ancient historical sources, we know that the Medo-Persian army came up with a brilliant invasion plan. You see, the Euphrates River ran under the wall of the city of Babylon, through the heart of the city, and out under the wall again. And so the Medes and the Persians, they came up with this plan that said, if we go upstream of the river and direct the water into the marshland, the water levels in the river are going to decrease. And the water levels are going to lower. And our soldiers could go under the walls of the city on both sides. And so this is exactly what they did. And they would wade through the shallow waters along the riverbed into the city and into the palace, and they killed the king. And Babylon was no more. Can you see why I think this could be a fantastic movie? Interesting characters, an arrogant king, uh, a mother that is willing to step in and, and, and help her son in a moment of need, Daniel, this invading army that had earlier surrounded the city of Babylon, but they were basically laughed at because of, it was considered this impenetrable fortress. Drama, intrigue. And so while the king is partying, the Medes and the Persians are planning And God is, in fact, in control of it all. And as the scene in the palace is unfolding, the army is quietly infiltrating the city and making their way to the palace. And that final battle scene ensues. Can you imagine the music building to a crescendo until the king is no longer... So what can we take away from Daniel chapter 5? Just a few takeaways, at least four. There's probably many more. But let me just say this. Pride is a killer. And I know that's strong, but it's probably the most obvious takeaway from Daniel chapter 5. The sheer unbridled pride of the king ultimately led to his demise. But pride kills a lot of things especially relationships. It's like an insidious cancer. As a friend of mine recently tweeted, self is the most miserable God you can serve. Now, wouldn't it be nice if repenting of your pride was as simple as taking a pill? It could be, in fact. So here, watch this. Two illnesses that have reached epidemic proportion today are pridefulitis and opinionatia. And many have lost hope. Symptoms include hearing loss, anger, the urge to debate, and delusions of not needing directions. I see pridefulitis every day in my practice. It destroys friendships, marriages, and careers. Sufferers can find it impossible to hear any advice or helpful input. But now there's hope. Introducing Humilify. After just a few days on Humilify, I was actually able to hear my spouse again. Humilify saved my marriage. I suffered from full-blown, nag-resistant pridefulitis. Humilify completely cured my hearing and my vision. Humilify gave me hope. 
Y has also been shown to be effective against other diseases, like I'm the victimitis, get off my caseus, and I know bestia. Exercise caution. Side effects include sincere apologies, attentive listening, and the realization that other people are intelligent. Make the decision that will change your life. Try Humilify today. Humilify. Isn't it time you swallowed your pride? Ah, uh, yeah. Tongue firmly planted in cheek, of course, but I think that was great. I love the, the side effects, the realization that other people are intelligent as a side effect. So good. But seriously, right? Pride is a bigger issue than we realize. Pride is at the very heart of so much sin. It's so easy to become so self-deceived that we sometimes cannot even see the deception of our own self-deception. The only real cure is that we humble ourselves before God. We turn to Him in repentance and faith, fully realizing that it has nothing to do with our own merit because that's, that's almost prideful in and of itself, but only because of the love and the grace of God. Second takeaway, God is in control. The theological word for God being in control is his sovereignty. And it's clear in Daniel chapter 5, and it was clear in the other chapters too, because there may be kings and rulers, there may be prime ministers and presidents, but God is really in charge. God is the one who sets up kings, and he can bring down kings. He is the one, as Daniel said to Belshazzar, who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. God has a plan and a purpose for each of our lives, and He is working it out. Each morning that we awake, it is a gift of grace from God. What God says will happen, will happen. And He says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So can I ask you this morning, have you bowed your knee to Jesus Christ? Acknowledging Him as Lord? There is simply no comparison between our one true God and all the other small gods we may worship. All the other little idols that are lifeless and dead and can't do anything at all. They know nothing at all. And our God knows everything. They are powerless to do anything at all. And yet God is all-powerful. And so yes, God is in control and that should give us great confidence and hope in a world that seemingly has gone mad. It's clearly broken. When you turn on the news or read Twitter or whatever you do, realize this, that God is not asleep at the switch. He understands. He knows. And while it may not make sense to us, there is a plan and a purpose, I am sure. Thirdly, I want to say, and I think faithfulness is just a blessing. As I think about Daniel and his availability to come and interpret the writing on the wall, the word faithfulness came to mind. Standing for God early on in his life, and now again, he's willing to serve God when he's well into his 80s. And he knows it's not him, but God working through him. Being faithful and remaining faithful is a wonderful blessing. I've had the privilege of being a pastor to many wonderful, faithful servants of God. 
But I have also experienced the heartbreak of watching people who seemingly were once full of zeal, serving passionately in ministry, flame out and even stop living out their faith. And they suddenly wonder if what they have professed to be true is actually true. The Christian faith journey isn't difficult to understand, although it may be hard to live sometimes. It isn't rocket science. Because you come to realize that, that, that when you come to realize that there is sin in your life and that you need a Savior, so you turn to that Savior in repentance and faith, and then you live under His Lordship. And that means just living in obedience to His Word. And as Eugene Peterson writes, it then is a long obedience in the same direction. And to help with that obedience, you you practice some vital spiritual disciplines, all intended to spend time with Jesus. You spend time in solitude and silence and study and prayer and so many other things. You spend time with Jesus alone. And He will remind you of His great love for you. But He also might remind you of that harsh word that you spoke to your spouse maybe hours earlier or the day before. Or maybe you said it to your child. Then what are you going to do? Well, you confess it in prayer and you repent of it. And you go to that person and ask for forgiveness. Like we saw in the video, uh, a side effect is giving sincere apologies. But you study His Word and the Holy Spirit presses truth upon truth into your heart and your mind and then you just live it out day after day, month after month, year after year. And it's just being faithful to being a child of God as to to living into what He's called you to be. Eat, sleep, walk humbly with God, repeat. Eat, sleep, walk humbly with God, repeat. That's it. And just do it faithfully, continually. And lastly, truth-telling is vital. Truth-telling is vital. You have to admire Daniel's courage to stand before a drunken, irrational king and deliver the message that he did. A king who, if he didn't like what he heard, certainly would have had the power to order the beheading of Daniel. But he stood before, before the king and said, you knew all this, all that history of Nebuchadnezzar, yet you have not humbled yourself. You have not honored God. In fact, you dishonored him. You'd think it would be easier for us to stand before a spouse, a friend, a co-worker, and with love and grace be able to say, by the way that you are living your life, by the way that you are treating your spouse, you are not honoring God. And God often uses other people in difficult circumstances to speak into our lives and to get our attention. And when He does, what do we do? We should seek to honor God. Well, as I just conclude with this, in each of these four points, pride is a killer, God is in control, faithfulness is a blessing, truth-telling is vital. I can see God using them to get our attention. And sometimes things almost have to go horribly wrong in our lives before God gets our attention. Prayer is that it never has to come to that, but whenever and however God does get our attention, my prayer is that we will run to God and not from God. That He is ultimately 
our only refuge, and refuge is only found in him. Read the Psalms, and you will discover that God can be our refuge. Let's pray. Father, give you thanks for your word. And I pray, Father, that we would pay attention to the times that you do get our attention. That we would wonder maybe why, and we would look for the purpose, knowing full well that sometimes we don't always get that purpose. But I pray, Father, that you would speak to each of us this morning. Perhaps there's just an encouragement to remain faithful at living out the Christian faith that you've called us to. Maybe it is a hard look at our own lives and the pride in our own lives. Father, we recognize that um, you're a God who is loving and merciful and grace and full of grace. And so we just pray, God, that you would do in our lives what we simply cannot do ourselves. And Father, I do pray that when you do get our attention, that we would run to you and not from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.